Well, beloved, please remain standing and open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 25. Matthew chapter 25. We will continue our uh, preaching upon the parable of the ten virgins or bridesmaids. And before I read from verse 1 through 13, let's ask our God's blessing upon the reading and the preaching and the hearing of His Word. Let's pray together. Now, blessed God, we come to you in the powerful and strong and precious name of Jesus, our prophet, priest, and king, our strong and powerful, gracious mediator who comes to minister to us, who comes, O Lord, to feed us these truths, these doctrines, and to hold on to us and fill us with great encouragement and hope and the the vigor of Christian obedience. Lord, we pray that as we continue our study of this parable, that you would open eyes and hearts to see and understand and to grasp its truth and, Lord, to hold on. Lord, to its message that it would be a preserving factor, a a preserving agent, Lord, along with all of these other common and, and spiritual graces that you've given to us to hold on to us in this life, Lord, in this culture, Lord, in these trying and challenging days that we live in. Lord, we ask your blessing upon it, Lord. Make it powerful, Lord, not because it's preached by some man, but that it's your word and you would bless its truth, Lord. It would be powerful spiritual truths, Lord, able to penetrate into the deepest crevices and recesses of our hearts and correct our uh, waywardness, enlighten our ignorance and give us the humility to repent, Lord, of any error that we find in ourselves and give us the strength to overcome it and put what is required into practice. And we pray all of this in the name of Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. We begin reading at verse 1, beloved. And Jesus said, And then the kingdom of heaven will be compared to ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were prudent. For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them, but the prudent took oil and flask along with their lamps. And now while the bridegroom was delaying, they all got drowsy and began to sleep. But at midnight there was a shout, Behold the bridegroom, come out to meet him. And then all those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said to the prudent, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the prudent answered, No, there will not be enough for us and you too. Go instead to the dealers and buy some for yourselves. And while they were going away to meet Uh, To make the purchase, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in with him to the wedding feast, and the door was shut. And later the other virgins also came, saying, Lord, Lord, open up for us. But he answered, Truly I say to you, now I do not know you. And be on the alert then, for you do not know the day nor the hour. Thus ends the reading of God's word. Please be seated.
Uh, last Lord's Day, I begin to set before you the doctrine that there are seasons in life where we have a moral obligation or a moral duty to give greater vigilance to the means of grace and to our Christian obedience due to the circumstances, due to the times. It's not that we are not to live vigilantly every day of our Christian lives, but there are times, there are seasons that we are required to give a greater, a, a heightened sense of our obedience, a heightened measure, if you will, of what God requires of us, of those things that are to preserve us naturally and commonly in the Christian life, but even more so when things become difficult and challenging and even dangerous. I didn't get far into the sermon as I just began laying out the context for you, but it certainly important for us to understand the context if we are going to preach or if I'm going to preach a sermon of this nature and type. You might even subtitle the sermon this morning, Living with a Greater Sense of Caution in 2022. I mean, that's kind of what we're talking about, isn't it? Now, what do we mean by caution though? Well, we're talking about not allowing the days that we are living in to harden our hearts or in some ways to harden our hearts to the means of grace. That somehow we would allow the circumstances of our nation to cause our love for God and his church to grow cold. That's what our Lord had warned the disciples of in Matthew 24. Let's look at that chapter again and just look at a few things that I think, again, setting the broader context and it narrows down into these last few parables, at least in the book of Matthew, before he closes uh, out the book, his writing. If you look at the beginning of Matthew 24, I'm just going to begin to read and, and highlight some of these verses. You're making notes. You can jot these verses down and come back and visit them later or listen to the sermon for the details. But notice Jesus, verse 1, comes out of from the temple and was going along with his disciples. And he came up to the point out of the uh, came up to point out the temple buildings to him. And th- he said to them, do you not see all these things, and truly I say to you, not one stone will be uh, here will be left upon another which will not be torn down. And as he was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, tell us when will these things happen and what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? So we see two questions really. And Jesus answered and said to them, see to it that no one misleads you. Now, that's a present tense problem, isn't it? Make sure, my disciples, that no one deceives you. Look at verse 5. For many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ, and will mislead many. False messiahs, false teachers, false leaders. 
Verse 6, you will be hearing of wars and rumors of war. See that you are not frightened, for these things must take place. And, and that is not yet. Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. In various places there will be famines and earthquakes and all these things are merely the beginning of birth pangs. And then you will, uh, then they will deliver you to tribulation and will kill you. And you will be hated by all nations because of my name. You see there in verse 9 what Jesus is saying to them. Listen, this is not just going to be a, a hatred for Zionism. This is a hatred for the, the, the Son of Man, the Son of God, for Christ and his Messiah and those who follow him and his, as his disciples. They're going to hate you because of Christ. Look at verse 11, or look at well, verse 10. And at that time, many will fall away and will betray one another and hate one another. Many false prophets will arise and will mislead many because lawlessness is increased. Most people's love will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end, he will be saved. And the gospel of the kingdom shall be preached to the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. The point I want to make here, beloved, is not to necessarily exegete fully the chapter of 24 of Matthew. We might do that later. I may visit some of these larger portions of Jesus' sermons later when I finish the parables. The point being that when things become very difficult, God's people can struggle. Their love can grow cold. They can become frightened. They can become anxious about the times they are living in. And they can withdraw from those things that Christ has gifted to them in order to preserve them in their profession of faith, in their testimony. And Jesus is warning them not to let this happen. Don't you do this. Don't let your love grow cold. Satan will infiltrate the church with false messiahs and teachers, but don't you fall for it. You be on the lookout for it. You stand strong and firm in these things that I have instructed you. Now think about Matthew 28 when he is ascending into heaven. What does he tell his disciples? Now remember, go teach the nations what? What I have taught you. Matthew is a beautiful gospel, perhaps my favorite out of the four. He does a masterful job of laying out before the Jewish people the failures of this legalistic system that the Pharisees had instituted, its failures, its inability to create the children of God and to manage them and to maintain them and to make them complete and whole and how Christ, when he came, rebuked it, destroyed it, taught against it. And he's, he's narrowing down, right? He, he brilliantly bringing into place what, Je I mean, constantly Matthew is highlighting how Jesus constantly rebukes the spiritual leadership. That's what he does right there in verse 42. We can come now to the sort of the end of the chapter when he gives them that same Greek phrase, therefore be on the alert right there in verse 42, same Greek phrase. For you do not know which uh, day your Lord is coming. And then he talks about the faithful servant. 
these, these faithful servants are supposed to be his ministers. These are the ones that have been tasked and given the moral duties, the obligations according to their office to do what? To faithfully and wisely and prudently feed the people of God, the means of grace, his word, so they might be instructed on what to believe in the world that we live in and how to live in it. In all of the various, the competition of worldviews, here's what you should believe. Here's how you should think. Here's how you should understand the world that you live in. Same thing for us today. It's not an accidental world that we live in. It's, well, it's created by God. It has a purpose. It was created purposely. God who lacked nothing, needed nothing, created something for his own glory. And that is something that we can easily overlook and forget about. But remember, the God who created needed nothing. He lacked nothing. There was nothing, nothing outside of himself that could satisfy him. He's completely satisfied in and of himself without any defect. And he chose to create. What a purpose. What a point to remember. These ministers, Jesus says, blessed is the slave in verse 46. All right, let's back up to verse 45. Well, who then is the faithful and sensible slave whom his master put in charge of his household to give them their food at the proper time? That's what we're talking about. These two attributes, right? Faithfulness, sensibleness, prudence, wisdom. That's what God's ministers were tasked to be, faithful and wise as they ministered to God's people. He says, blessed is that slave whom his master finds doing so when he comes. You might say that the church under the old administration in the covenant of grace, right, lived under the anticipation of the coming Messiah, the one who would come uh, as the son of man and the son of God, the one who would be both man and God, the, the promised one, God with us, if you will, fulfilling all of those Old Testament prophecies concerning God coming and remedying the, the, the plight of man. And they missed it. Most of them missed it. Not all of them. And these are the ones that Jesus takes to task and he rebukes and, and condemns them for, for maintaining their hard-hearted opinions and views even in the midst of his miracles, even in the midst of his preaching the gospel, even in the midst of him demonstrating time after time that he was Emmanuel, God with them. And they still would not have anything to do with it. And because of that, he rebuked them harshly, rightly so, because they were misleading so many of God's people. They were misleading the, if you will, the, the outward visible church in these matters. It is no, um, it's not accidental that when things happen, 
it's quite often that the church looks to the leadership and goes, well, what do they think? Or how, what are they doing about this? I want to know what they think about these things. It's always been that way. Leadership's vitally important to every organization, isn't it? It's important in the family. There has to be leadership in the home. And there has to be a certain kind of leadership in the home, right? That is the kind that is faithful to God. Given the circumstances, not every family is equal. There are certainly common things that we all share and experience, but no family is equal in all of those things. And the matter is that each family is to be faithful and prudent in the things that they have before them and what they're able to do and what they're called to do with the resources and the gifts and the talents and all that they have so that they can be faithful to God. Same way, same way in the church. Same way in the church. There has to be faithful, prudent, wise leadership in the church if the people are going to have some type of encouragement and assurance that what they're experiencing and what they're going through, they're doing the right thing. That doesn't mean perfection. There's certainly no perfection in the family on this side of sin, the fall. And there's no perfection in the church leadership, but yet there's still faithfulness. That's what Jesus was looking for. He was looking for prudence and wisdom. He was looking for faithfulness among his ministers, just like he looks for it in the home. He looks for it in the church. And brothers and sisters, he looks for it in the political world too. I'll say more about that soon enough. Leadership is important. This, at least this morning, I want to begin to open up for you this idea of caution. The idea that there are certain periods of time, whether they're personal whether they're common to the church in general, that is things that we experience as a body. There are things you experience as a person that we all don't experience and share at that time. And there are things that we can identify and wrestle with nationally that we need to address. And I think this is the failure of much of the 20th or the 20th and 21st century church to address these national sins, to address these national challenges in order for the church to maintain her witness to the world. And that's what we're to do, right? We're to be salt and light. What does that mean? What, how do we open that up? Well, to be salt and light is to maintain a profession of faith, is to maintain our witness is to maintain these revealed truths in Scripture that are commonly understood that we would walk in them, that we would perform them, and that when we failed at them, we would confess it as sin and keep moving onward. I think one of the tactics of Satan is to demonstrate that, you know, all are sinners and, you know, there's... That's just the way it is where, you know, there's no, no one without sin. And for some reason at that statement, the Christian church has shrunk back 
Instead of going, well, of course, but we're still called to live this victorious life in Christ. And this victorious life looks X, Y, Z in this circumstance. And we're still called to those things. So let's address this idea of vigilance, this caution, this, this heightened sense, if you will, of understanding that we are to be, we ought to be, there are certain periods where we ought to take great effort, make great effort to preserve our profession of faith by making use of the means of grace so that we obtain eternal life. As I said last week, the word in this context, in this particular context of the ten virgins and of the, the slave feeding the servants that Christ comes back to in the beginning of uh, the end of chapter 24, there is this idea of, of a great loss involved. There's a consequence. There's, there's something to be lost if you don't rise up and meet the challenge of the day with great vigilance. And we'll see that as we go along into some of these texts of Scripture. Let's start in the beginning. Let's look at Genesis chapter 2. Now, I started going through here and I started thinking about all the various dispensations of scripture, uh, those time periods. And it was, um, it was edifying to see the thread that run through both, uh, run particularly through the Old Testament and as we'll find consistent with the New Testament understanding, but that all along the way, our Lord has given caution to his people in Genesis chapter 2, I'm just going to point this out. I'm going to make a simple comment of application and we'll move on. Uh, in chapter 2, verse 15, now we have a very unique situation. We have the Garden of Eden. We have Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. It is very, very common interpretation that the Garden of Eden is typified as the church, the spiritual uh, haven, if you will, of God's people. And notice in verse 15, and then God, the Lord God took the man and put him into the Garden of Eden to cultivate it and keep it. That last bit of that, the last clause there in the Hebrew, cultivate and keep, it means to guard over and protect it. It is a military concept. That Adam even in his innocence as that public person of God would have the duty and the task to guard the church, to guard that spiritual domain of God's people where they lived. And we know why he should have guarded over and kept it to keep sin from coming into the garden and them being tempted by it. But you see there, that's something interesting. God tell them, look, be on alert. Be on your guard. 
protect this environment that you have. Well, let's look at another one. Let's look at Genesis 4. In Genesis 4, this is after the fall of Adam and Eve and their posterity in them. And we see a conflict among Cain and Abel. Very first one recorded in Scripture. There's hatred between two brothers. Now, even as this is transpiring or it's taking place, look at verse, well, let's read verse 4 and following. Abel, on his part, also brought the firstlings of his flock and of their fat portions, and the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering. But for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain became very angry and his countenance fell. And then the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? And why has your countenance fallen? If you do well, will not your countenance be lifted up? Now we'll stop there. Now consider the situation. We have a man who is being warned. God in his common grace here is warning Cain, be careful. You have sinned. Your countenance reveals that you have sinned. Your countenance has fallen. Worship has not lifted your countenance. It has caused your countenance to fall because God has not rejected or God has rejected your worship. And as John tells us in 1 John, that he was offered up his worship in, uh, without faith. And that was sinful. But now look at the latter part of verse 7. So he asked the question, will not your countenance be lifted up? And if you do uh, and if you do not do well, sin is crouching at your door and its desire is for you, but you must master it. Now, this is very similar to what we're talking about here, but this is very on a personal level. I mean, none of us are going to experience what Cain has experienced here, but yet God has come to him. And what does he tell Cain? Even in our personal experiences, he says, listen, there, there, here's, a, here's a season, here's a point in Cain's life that he must take account of his heart. He must look at himself. He must be introspect. He must be cautious. He must be prudent. He must be watchful and examine himself. He must deal honestly and sincerely with his heart because if he does not, well, what's the result? And we know what happened. Cain did not do that. Cain did not heed this warning. He did not heed this advice. He did not take the Lord's advice and he allowed that sin of malice to grow in his heart until it burst forth in the murder of his brother. He should have watched over his heart. I could do the same thing with Genesis chapter 6. We could go and read in Hebrews 11, make a note of this for yourself, and we could talk about how Noah's faithfulness, he preached for that over 100 years in order to do what? Call 
call the world, if you will, to the visible church. Call them to make a profession of faith. Call them to repent of their sins and to do what? And to turn from their evil and wicked ways that had become so evil and so wicked that God had determined the cause of universal flood to just wipe it all out. And for all of that time, they did not heed They did not consider or give serious thought to the preaching of God's prophet Noah. And they fell in that universal judgment. Let's look at Deuteronomy chapter 4. Deuteronomy is another so a unique, uh, at least is describing another unique situation. They are about to enter into the promised land. Now, something we're not going to experience physically, if you will. Obviously, there's a spiritual connection to this truth uh, between this world and heaven. But nevertheless, they are about to enter into the promised land. And God had already demonstrated his um, uh, wrath upon an unbelieving generation. Remember, these are the sons. These are the children, if you will, the, the sons and daughters of those who have come out of Egypt, except for Joshua and Caleb. Now, this, this new generation or that younger generation is about to enter into the promised land. And what does God do? God takes and he gives warnings to those people. Look at verse 9. And and there, we could have started in chapter one, but these are just a few that I pulled out. Verse nine of four, only give heed to yourself and keep your soul diligently so that you do not forget the things which your eyes have seen and they do not depart from your heart all the days of your life, but make them known to your sons and grandsons. What does he say? Give heed to yourself, be cautious. Why? Because as you go into the promised land, if you don't maintain this land by faith, that is, you're going to, you're going to overtake it by faith, Joshua 1, but you can only maintain the land by faith. Right? Because if they failed, if they failed at maintaining their faith, that is their worship and their adoration, their service to the living and true God, if they allowed the surrounding nations to influence them, then God would come and contend with them. He'd come and deal with them. Verse 23 of chapter four. So watch yourselves that you do not forget the covenant of the Lord your God, which he made with you and make for yourselves a graven image in the form of anything against which the Lord your God has commanded you. The, The chapter has other admonitions in it as well. You can go back and read those. Those are just two that I pulled out because they are consistent with the Hebrew idea of what we're talking about in Matthew 25. It's not a new concept here. That is, that is Christ warning his disciples to give extra attention to the days that they live in is nothing new. It's nothing new. 
because there are seasons and patterns of life that do call us to certain heightened activity of worship and obedience. That doesn't mean, oh, I need, you know, here's the way we handle it most of the time. Things start going poorly. Now we've neglected the, listen, in our hearts, it always starts in our hearts. In our mind and our hearts, we start growing dull to the things of God. Then, I mean, for a season, we can, we can, out of habit, pick up our Bibles. Out of habit, we can look at some Proverbs and some Psalms. And out of habit, we can pray here and there. Well, then things become challenging. And oftentimes, we see it as God is chastening me. I doubt seriously that there's any saint here of any decent age that has not said in their own private counsel to God, Lord, you are chastening me. You're teaching me, you're correcting me for my sin, my neglect. And then we ascribe, right, a degree of obedience What do we start doing? We start doing the things we used to do. And that's one of the commandments that our Lord gives us to gives to one of the churches in the book of Revelation, right? Go back and begin doing those things that you did when you first loved me. But what I'm talking about here is is slightly different. What I'm talking about is we have this general disposition of obedience, adoration, and love, common This is what is common among professing believers that we demonstrate a a, a common, a, a general obedience that all of us ascribe to and put our hands to and make a profession of faith and do the things that Christians ought to be doing. But this is something even greater. This is more. That what our Lord is teaching us is there are seasons of life that require more of us than at other times. But at no time are we to be cold and lethargic and sickly, right? I don't want you to misunderstand what I'm saying. I'm not saying you're sickly and tired and lethargic. I'm saying, no, in your obedience, in your adoration, in your love, I'm asking you, now there's a heightened sense based upon our circumstances that may require more of you. Deuteronomy chapter 11, verse 16, beware that your hearts are not deceived and that you do not turn away and serve other gods and worship them. Again, this caution that God gives his people, look, you're going to go into the land and you're going to be tempted. You're going to be tempted to follow after other gods. How do you follow after other gods? You follow after other philosophies of life, other worldviews. Now, it is not, it is, it's not a, it's not, It's something we need to keep in mind. The church, the visible church, and these 
these ministers have allowed membership of the church to profess Christian, to profess Christ and hold to blatant pagan ideas. Evolution is one of them. The Episcopal Church has come out and made a statement about transgenderism and their huge support of it. That they won't discriminate. That's when you know, beloved, you are serving other gods. It's this, I'm not intending to beat the church up. I'm trying to be faithful and realistic to our circumstances and to understand that we are a part, right? We are a part of this world, this nation that we live in, this community and these ideas. We are inundated by these things regularly, where we work, where we live, our conversations. Joshua chapter 23, verse 11 So take diligent heed to yourselves, he says. To do what? To love the Lord your God. And what Joshua is saying is, look, I know you love God, but but as you go into this land, as you occupy this land, as you do the hard work of, 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 uh, cleansing out the inhabitants, if you will, and begin and begin putting your hands to houses you didn't build, vineyards you didn't plant, right? As you begin to partake of crops that you did not cultivate, make sure that you exhibit even a heartier love for God. Why? Because I didn't have to build this house I'm living in. There is a greater sense of God bringing his people, what? Out of the house of bondage. Don't forget the context. Out of the house of bondage. Under the tyrannical rule of Pharaoh. Bringing them out and placing them in the promised land as he had promised Abraham he would do. The land is maintained. The land was occupied by faith. It's maintained by faith. You come into your church relationship by faith, right? I believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. I put my faith and trust in him that he alone is the sufficient payment for my sins and the sufficient, the only one that God will accept as as my place, in my place for my sins. And I rest in that. But you have to maintain a life of faith. You can't just make that statement of faith and go on about your business. You have to do what? Then live every day of your life maintaining, holding to, maturing, and and seeing that faith cultivated in every aspect of your life. Let's go to a couple of places in the Old Testament that we are very familiar with. I preached on one or two of these, but let us see it in the context. Proverbs chapter 4. We could look at verse 23 and 25 and 26. And what do we see here? We see personal duties, don't we? Verse 23, watch over your heart with all diligence. That's the same idea that Jesus is speaking of in Matthew 25 and 24. From it flow the springs of life. 
verse 25 and 26. Let your eyes look directly ahead and let your gaze be fixed straight in front of you. Watch the path of your feet and all your ways will be established. Now, those are personal duties, aren't they? These are things that we ought to be doing on a personal level, but also understanding, beloved, that there is a, a, a heightened sense in a national sense that the church lives in. We're, look, we're, not in, we're not of the world, but we are in it. And we don't stick our heads in the sand and act otherwise. Look at Proverbs chapter 8, verse 34. And blessed is the man who listens to me, watching daily at my gates and waiting at my doorpost. What does this proverb tell us? It tells us that, well, the obedient are blessed. We are to understand the word blessed as that which lives in that Favor, that stream of favor of God, that happiness, the one who is the recipient of what? That happiness, that peace, that joy that's unspeakable. Who does that belong to? The obedient. But that's even the one who understands the day and the times that they live in because I know that in this circumstance, whether it's my own heart plaguing me or whether I find myself in the context of sin among individuals or whether I find myself in a nation that's challenging the very foundations of Christianity, I need to be obedient and if I need to give a heightened effort to the means of grace, I'm going to do so to maintain my obedience. That person is blessed. It doesn't mean, beloved, I mean, there will be many Christians are when you see the prevailing ignorance of the day of Christian doctrine, and that's what preaching is. What is preaching? Preaching is the proclamation of the gospel and what? Christian doctrine. And what that means for us in our faith and what we ought to believe, but how we apply it, right? Again, we've been inundated with moralistic preaching and there will be so many people that have sat under sermons that have given them multitude of steps for a multitude of activities and when they find themselves in these moments and times, they don't know what to do. They don't know what God requires of them. And they're looking for answers and they're looking for guidance, they're looking for leadership. And typically they don't look for it in the church because the church hasn't led them there yet. So they go outside the church, they go to the Joe Rogans, they go to all these other podcasts, they go to all of these secular gurus, if you will, and they're looking for answers. And this is the answer. And I'm thankful that our God is gracious and common, it's common grace. It's a real thing. And it's sad that when I can go to various podcasts and hear more truth than I can typically hear in any given sermon. That's an indictment upon the ministry of ministers. Not the people, ministers. And I praise God that he's raising these people up. 
That doesn't mean they're saved. But he uses crooked sticks all the time to build what he's building. Do we have to go back to the book of Habakkuk to remind us that God decided to use a man named Nebuchadnezzar? A brilliant man, an engineer, but a wicked man to carry out his purposes toward his church. To educate them and teach them the lesson of what it is to abandon these things that they should have been watchful over. Proverbs 16, verse 17, the highway of the upright is to depart evil. He who watches his way preserves his life. I think you can see the connection. There's one other proverb I want to bring to your attention. And it's fitting to the it's fitting to the subject. Uh, Proverbs 24. As I was reading uh, this week um, in Proverbs 24, or as I was reading this week preparing for this sermon this morning, uh, John Flavel pointed out this text of Scripture, and he was speaking in context of, he was making a spiritual application of Proverbs 24, verse 30 and following, and making that application to the church. And he was condemning uh, the ministers, unfaithful ministers. He's commending faithful ministers, but he condemns sluggards in the ministry. He says, I passed by the field of the sluggard and by the vineyard of the man lacking sense. Now he quoted in his day ministers that fit this description. He says, and behold, it was completely overgrown with thistles. Its surface was covered with nettles and its stone wall was broken down. And when I saw, I reflected upon it and I looked and received instruction. A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands of, uh, to rest. And your poverty will come as a robber and your want like an armed man. What he was saying was that... Each ministry, if you will, when Jesus comes in a variety of context, come to us individually, maybe tonight, tomorrow, he certainly will come to each of us. Coming in judgment upon the church, upon the nation, and of course coming at the end of time. But what is he talking about? He says, well, there's this vineyard. What happens to the vineyard? And this vineyard is the church. He said, what happens to the sluggard, the, the minister who's a sluggard and lacks sense? He says, he lets the church be overgrown with thistles and briars and its beautiful stone wall that protects it from the outward world or the outward, you know, uh, landscape is broken down. And the church is just ripe for all kinds of error and all kinds of wrong influences. And we can certainly, I think, attest that that's true today. Let's look at the New Testament and you'll see the same things, beloved. Certainly impressing you with this, this command to be vigilant. Acts 20 and verse 31 
uh, Paul speaking with these Ephesian elders, he does the same thing. Therefore, be on the alert. And that's the same Greek word here. And that word is not used throughout the New Testament. It's only used in a few locations. There are others that mean similar things, but I think this one has the, the sense of that loss if you don't listen to me. Therefore, be on the alert, remembering that night and day for a period of three years, I did not cease to admonish each one with tears. And what was Paul doing? Paul was certainly encouraging these elders to, in their day and time in this transition from the old administration to the new administration, in this heightened sense of persecution and violence to the church, be vigilant, basically what he was saying. Be cautious, stand on the wall, see these things, understand the days in which you are living and prepare yourselves and prepare God's people to know how to handle themselves in these circumstances. Paul does the same thing in 1 Corinthians chapter 16 and verse 13. He says, be on the alert. Now he's talking to this Gentile congregation. Stand firm in the faith. Act like men and be strong. Uh, Paul is calling the church in their circumstances to be vigilant. Why? Because, well, they were being inundated by these super apostles. You know, these real clever guys, these very smart people. Man, they could preach. Man, they, they could lecture. They could preach. They were, they were skilled in rhetoric. I mean, man, they could, they could bring the house down, and they loved to make fun of the Apostle Paul. They loved to highlight their skill sets and then point out to the people, you know, why, why do you listen to this guy? If he's an apostle, we're super apostles. And Paul tells them, look, be aware. Be on your guard. Colossians 4 and verse 2, devote yourselves to prayer, keeping alert in it with an attitude of thanksgiving. We can see that this vigilance is accompanied with other graces. Like what? Well, prayer. Prayer. Thanksgiving. Prayer is an accompanying grace, isn't it? It accompanies our reading of the Bible. It accompanies our preaching of the gospel. It did this morning. It accompany our taking of the Lord's Supper. It accompany our opening up to the call to worship, did it not? It's an accompanying grace, and we attend to it, and we, we use prayer as that means, that conduit of faith to talk to our God and certainly exclaim his blessings, but to call upon him to come and bless us, but that we would ask and petition our God for his strength and mercy and kindness and goodness to us so that that we might persevere in the faith, that we would maintain our profession of faith. 1 Thessalonians 5. It says, verse 6, so then let us not sleep as others do, but let us be alert and sober. Why? Because even those Christians in Thessalonica or in Thessalonia, even, even they, even they were uh, 
subject to being victims of those false teachers coming and going, I know you heard Paul say these things, but remember, we're super apostles here. This morning, let me end with these couple of passages of Scripture out of Revelation. Revelation chapter 2, verses, or chapter 3, rather, verses 2 and 3, John says, wake up, another concept of this Greek word, and strengthen the things that remain. That's the obvious duty. If you've been asleep, you have to wake up. And if you have been asleep, then you've neglected something. So it's reasonable, it's obvious that wake up and strengthen the things that remain which which were about to die for I have not found your deeds completed in the sight of my God. So remember that you have, remember what you have received and heard and keep and repent. Therefore, if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief and you will not know at what hour I will come to you. Churches that find themselves in this condition have the duty of of repenting of it. And that repentance, the fruit of repentance is what? Wake up. You weren't cautious. you, You weren't very discerning. You weren't watching out. So now the fruit of repentance is what? I am cautious of these things. I am looking out over these things. I am very prudent in the things I'm looking for that I'm going to put myself to in these particular seasons and times. And I'm going to begin to do those things with a greater vigilance. Revelation 16, verse 15, Behold, I I am coming like a thief. Go back to Matthew 24. And blessed is the one who stays awake and keeps his clothes so that he will not walk about naked and men will will not see his shame. What are we talking about here? Well, we're talking about being ignorant of the things of the Lord. That's what he's talking about. You know, wake up. Wake up and don't allow these things to be taken from you. Now, sometimes they're given up. But how are they taken How does Satan come and take? He infiltrates the church and he teaches God's people or he teaches the people, some being a mixed congregation, the people of God and not, and he teaches the people, these things are okay, but there are better things. Yeah, you know, families ought to worship God together and families ought to need spiritual leadership and whatnot. But you know what? Don't worry about those things. You know what you need to be? You need to be best friends with each other. And I'm not saying there's not friendships among family members. Don't don't misunderstand me. I'm telling you that God's people have been psychologized to be anti-Christian in many areas of life. Many areas of life. And we need to be aware of this. We need to understand these things so that we are not ignorant and then subject to these various errors that come along. There are some applications here. 
And I want these applications to just, obviously, it moves from a generals to some of these particular things, right? Because we need to be alert, and that looks differently in our personal lives. But stronger Christians should be of the mindset of helping weaker Christians understand the day. Now, how? By beating it into them? No. Often just by example. I mean, just because you're ready to teach somebody doesn't mean you're an example. There's a big difference. That's one of the, I think, great weaknesses of preaching. Well, not only are we required to know a little bit and to preach these truths of God, but we're required to live it. And there's a great responsibility there, isn't there? But we are required, brothers and sisters, to live out our faith. And at that point, we are first an example. We teach people by our example. I mean, listen, the upper room in book of Acts. How were they teaching God's people? What did they teach God's people to be busy with? What were they doing? They were up there praying. Hey, what are you doing? Well, hey, we're going to have some special prayer meetings and we're going to be praying for the strength of the church. It's being persecuted. We're going to get together um, and, and we're going to be spending seasons in prayer. You know, the Baptist church that I went to that I've talked about a couple of times from this pulpit, you know, one of the, uh, somebody had made a comment that, I mean, the ministry that God blessed there was tremendous. I mean, raising up Reformed pastors out of that congregation. But you know what they had? For years, they had a prayer room and a ministry where people signed up and there was almost somebody praying 24 hours a day. And you signed up and there was a book and you signed up whether 30 minute block or an hour, you signed up that you were gonna, you could be in there and you were praying. And there were people signed up and they prayed and they prayed and they prayed for the missions of the world primarily and the needs of the church. And you know what? Shocker, God blessed it. God blessed it. God poured out his spirit on that church in many different ways. My my question to us, beloved, as a church body, well, as families, beloved, be careful, be vigilant, and understand that the world opposes a godly family at every turn. Every turn. It opposes the leadership of the home, the headship of the home. It it opposes the submission and loving obedience of the children to the parents. It it opposes what the family was called to be in the beginning and now in Christ. Churches, be dedicated to the simple things, to the ordinary things, be committed to the means of grace. These are the ways that God preserves us. This is how God keeps us. And we must be committed to it. And we must each play our role and part, right? And this is not beating anyone up. This is just saying, as you are able, what you are able to do, things that you are able to do, 
things that you understand that you rise up and understand your role as a person in your family and in your church and in your nation. All of these things are vital and important. But listen, it starts with your heart and with sound doctrine and your faith and your personal walk with the Lord. Everything else flows out of that. Your home, your church, and your nation. Let's pray. Father, we do come at the end of this message thanking you for the various ways in which you have warned your people. From the beginning of time, you have warned your church to be vigilant, to be cautious, to be on guard. And Lord, we can even see in our own lives how we have troubled ourselves even maybe our homes and even our church when we're not vigilant. When we don't see that there is an extra measure that we need to attend to or that we need to do. Now, Father, we've established this truth and I pray as we go forward that you would continue to enlighten our minds and you would, Lord, instruct us and show us, Lord, what these duties are. And what this looks like in its broader context. Now, Father, as we come now to the Lord's Supper, uh, we pray that you would come and we would examine ourselves and that it would be an examination that is that you approve of. That we would be mindful of our condition. Lord, that we would take a serious and sincere look at ourselves and Lord, call upon you to correct us, instruct us. Lord, call upon you to cleanse us. And we pray, O oh Lord, that in this supper that we would truly exhibit genuine faith, thanksgiving, and love for you. And a common, a, 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 and common ground with our brothers and sisters as we are one body and one loaf. We are part of each other, members of one another. So, Lord, help us to understand this. Help us to believe it is so. Help us to live in light of its reality. We pray all of this in Christ's name. Amen.